particular purpose. I grew up in a family where um, academic learning and achievement was highly valued. And so it's no wonder that I ended up going to graduate school and getting a PhD in clinical psychology. I didn't actually start this practice till I was, I think, 40 or 41 years old, which is some 30 years ago. So now you know. (laughs) I... uh, I loved my study of psychology. I thought I was learning a lot of amazing things. I was reading so many books, so many books. I had a whole library of textbooks, you know, and wow, reading Freud, reading Jung, reading all these great thinkers. And and I tried as best as I could to apply what I was learning from all these books to working with people. And then I started this practice, and this was in the early 80s. And at that time, it's hard to believe now, but at that time there were like two or maybe three Dharma books. That's all there was. There was a book by Jack Cor- uh, Joseph Goldstein. There was a book by Suzuki Roshi, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. And there was another little pamphlet of somebody who had gone to... Thailand and written this tiny little thing. And we would all like pass them around like, wow, this is amazing. That was the only books. So I, I learned that the only way I was going to understand this practice or this path was by going on retreat. So I did because I thought it was so amazing and I couldn't wait for the next Dharma talk. That was the way of learning. And by going on retreat over and over again, I bumped into a whole new way of learning than that of reading books. And what I have come to so treasure and so value over these many years of practice and teaching is this way of learning. This way of learning that is based very much in our direct experience. Something that struck me early on in the Buddhist teachings was what the Buddha said, come see for yourself if what I say is true. I don't think anybody in my whole life had ever said anything like that. (laughs) See for myself? not believe what others were telling me, like that's the belief, you believe it, and you take it on, and it's a theory, and you, you know. So that was very striking to me, that I could look to my own experience to find the truth. That was a new idea. And I remember one... uh, long retreat at Insight Meditation, where I was doing most of my practice, because of course Spirit Rock didn't even exist then. Um, And there was a man from India, Munindra, who was Joseph Goldstein's Indian teacher. And he would tell these stories about how he taught mindfulness to these old peasant women in, in Bodh Gaya. They would come in from the villages and he would teach them mindfulness. 
And he said they would go back to their villages. They were completely illiterate. They didn't read. They had no books. But they would practice. And they would have deep levels of realization. And I was so inspired by that. I thought, this is my path. <laughs> this is my path. A path that can be taught no matter what your level of you know, academic achievement is. That has no relevance here. Because this path trusts this capacity that every human has to look within and find the truth for themselves. So I love that I've been able to practice this way, uh, hear the teachings, put them into practice, and see how they work. In the Buddhist tradition, it is said that the teachings must pass two tests. Two tests. One, you must be able to find the truth of them in your own experience. And two, when you put the teachings into practice, they lead to a lessening of suffering. This is how we practice. This is how we learn. And this is how real change occurs. It is not theoretical. It is not philosophical. Requires no ideology. It is very practical. So I'd like to read you a little story from this book by Gil Fransdale called A Monastery Within, Tales from the Buddhist Path. And it's a book that Gil wrote of little, like little teaching stories from uh, about a uh, mythical monastery where the person in charge is a woman and her name is the abbess. So this is a little story from that book. After lunch one day, the abbess and a visiting philosophy professor went for a walk along the river that passed by the monastery. Being a hot day, they eventually sat down to cool off under the shade of a large tree. The professor asked the abbess, I am interested in learning Buddhist philosophy. Could you tell me some of the fundamental doctrines of your religion? Well, said the abbess, I don't think I can help you much. We see, you see, we don't rely on any philosophy at my monastery. But, continued the professor, everyone consciously or unconsciously has a philosophy with which they make sense of their life and their purpose. It is different in the monastery, replied the abbess. At the monastery, we rely on awareness, not doctrines. But, insisted the professor, you must have a philosophy which explains the importance of being aware. (laughs) After pausing to consider how best to respond, the abbess said, Well, as we walked along, we were both aware of how hot, sweaty, and tired we had become from our walk. We did not need a philosophy to tell us the benefits of sitting down here in the shade. If you put your hand on a hot stove, you don't need a philosophy to pull the hand away. If a baby is crying from hunger, the need to feed the child is obvious. Buddhist practice does not depend on having a set of doctrines or beliefs. 
Rather, it depends on being aware of what brings release from suffering. Rather than being taught Buddhist philosophy, at the monastery people are trained to develop an acutely refined awareness. With such sensitivity, ultimate liberation is as natural as sitting down in the shade on a hot day. So this is the practice we are developing here, this practice of opening ourselves, becoming aware in many ways that perhaps we've never even considered to be uh, important or desirable. I'm saying this as a preface to my talk tonight uh, on what the Buddha called the cause of dukkha, It follows, this talk follows from the talk Mark gave last night on the First Noble Truth. And the preface of this talk is meant to encourage you to look for the truth of what I am saying, what I am speaking about in your own experience. I'll be talking about what the Buddha called the cause of suffering, which is the force of craving in the human mind, the force of craving that wants more of the pleasant and wants to get rid of the unpleasant. This is a, 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 you could say, a primal force in the human mind. So this is not a talk that will uh, be trying to promote a philosophical view about the force of desire in the human mind, uh, where we make it into a bad thing or it's unspiritual to want anything, which are sort of common distortions of this teaching on the cause of suffering. But a look at the kind of desire that uh, craving is, the kind of desire which gets us into trouble, which leads to, to suffering, which is destructive, harmful, enslaving. The Buddha called this craving. So most of the time we look to the outer circumstances of our lives as the reason or the cause of our dissatisfaction we rearrange the deck chairs on the Titanic. And we do it over and over again, still somehow believing that will alleviate our situation. It was the Buddha's penetrating insight that the essential cause lies within us in the way that we relate to the world, ourselves, what arises in our minds and bodies. He called this craving, and the Pali word is tanha, T-A-N-H-A, which the translation of which is unslakable thirst, unslakable thirst. This word unslakable, you don't hear it too much in popular culture. (laughs) 
least I haven't heard it um, recently, unslakable. So I looked it up. It was a little hard to find, actually, but it actually has a wonderful meaning. The meaning is incapable of satisfying a need. Incapable of satisfying a need. So unslakable thirst is a kind of thirst that never gets satisfied. And it goes very much with what Mark was saying last night about one definition of dukkha, which he gave as incapable of providing lasting satisfaction. So, tanha. The Dhammapada says, the rain could turn to gold and still your thirst would not be slaked. Desire is unquenchable. Many years ago, when I was exploring different ways of practicing, I spent some time at a Zen center where they chanted um, every, every time you went into the Zendo, you, chant, you did some chants, and one of them was, desires are inexhaustible, I vow to put an end to them. Desires are inexhaustible, I vow to put an end to them. So how does this sound to you? <laughs> People are saying, I don't know. This is such a different message than we usually get about desire, isn't it? You might be thinking, well, desires are, I kind of like desires. I mean, they're kind of beautiful. They bring beautiful things into the world. They're my way of manifesting stuff in my life. And, you know, uh, passion, passion is, is a great way to be in the world, you know? We might have resistance to hearing about Desire as this sort of, you know, unslakable thirst. It sounds kind of, uh, well, it doesn't sound attractive, does it? <laughs> so yes, there are wholesome desires. We're not here to say that all desire is this terrible force in the mind and we must get rid of it. Nothing like that. There are many wholesome desires that help us in our lives. The desire to come on this retreat, the desire to be part of this program, to work on yourself, to, you know, become a more uh, wise and compassionate and kind presence in your own life, in your own heart, in your mind. I mean, these are good desires your desire to connect with people, to take care of your families, to have good relationships, to work for, you know, the climate, for peace. I mean, these are all very wholesome desires. But there's this other force that we could say is an addictive kind of desire, and that is tanha. In the Buddhist way of describing this, this quality of tanha arises in the chain of dependent origination as a response to three things. And these are the three things that you learned in your last, the first training. And these are the qualities of Vedana, the feeling tones of experience. Remember what they are? Pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. Pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. 
how do how do how does pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral arise? It arises in conjunction with the sense doors. There's you hear sounds, you see sights, you smell smells, you taste, you have sensations in the body, and you have thoughts that arise in your mind. And as they arise, they arise with a predominant feeling tone of one of these qualities of either pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. When the pleasant feeling tone arises, a pleasant sight, a pleasant sound, a pleasant thought, the the uh, natural, the sort of arising that comes almost automatically is, I want more. I want to go towards that. So we talked a lot last time about recognizing those moments of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. They are the birthplace, you could say, of hope and fear. When we come in contact with a pleasant sight, a pleasant thought, a pleasant sound, and we're not mindful of that feeling tone, it quickly can proliferate into a desire for more, It triggers hope that a need will be satisfied. On the other side, when we come in contact with an unpleasant sensation or thought and we are not mindful of that quality of unpleasant, it can quickly proliferate into a fear of something harmful or dangerous that we need to get away from. Mindfulness of the pleasant and the unpleasant and how they play in our experience has the potential to free us from hope and fear. We learn we can be with pleasant experience without building an unrealistic fantasy that we then pursue. We learn that we can be with unpleasant experiences without proliferating into fear. It's quite liberating to know this is just unpleasant. It doesn't mean that something disastrous is going to happen. We can also recognize neutral experiences and explore them without getting bored or zoning out, which is what happens so often with neutral. So these feeling tones are arising in every moment of our experience. And if we don't see them for what they are, if we don't even know they're there, we don't recognize them, we, don't, we overlook them, it very easy, we easily end up with this, this chain that, that happens so quickly of craving, grasping, and clinging. So we all too often are dancing to their tune without even realizing it. And a retreat is an ideal environment to notice how this works. How the play of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral conditions our experience. For example, say you're walking down by the kitchen in the afternoon sometime and you smell this lovely aroma coming out of the kitchen and it's sort of a smell of maybe ginger and cinnamon and cardamom and 
it smells kind of yummy and you immediately get an image of chai. They're making chai. And that's just what I need at this moment in the retreat. That will be so good for me. I need a jolt of chai. Oh boy, I can't wait. And you can almost taste it. You're so kind of like, wow, chai is coming my way. So you be sure to get in line, you know, early on for the next meal. And you're anticipating that lovely chai that's going to be soon in your hands. And you go into the dining room and you're looking around and you don't see any chai. (laughs) You look at all the counters, you look at all the tables, you look everywhere. There's got to be chai here somewhere. I know they're making chai. It's not there. There is no chai. So how do you feel? Oh, no chai. Oh. There never was any chai. But based, based on this pleasant smell and this rush of association, it all got produced, didn't it? Just came up in your mind as a, as a, a proliferation of this, this kind of craving for something that you need. Another example, say you are... Um, you're, you are in the yoga room, doing, I mean, in the meditation hall, and you're doing asana practice, and you notice someone who is just moving so beautifully and so exquisitely, and of course they have the perfect yoga body, and you just want to stop and watch them because they seem so masterful and so accomplished, and you just think, wow, that's amazing. And then immediately comparing mind arises and you think, and what am I doing here? I'm such a klutz. I can't believe they even let me in this program compared to this person who's clearly, you know, just doing this amazing yoga world life. So... Both of these instances began quite innocently with a pleasant something, a pleasant arising, a pleasant smell, a pleasant sight, and quickly proliferated into a story, a story that had some import for you. In Buddhist psychology, this is, this is tagged as an important moment to notice the moment of contact, how this happens so quickly. So from the Sutta Nipata it says, For some people the moment of contact, the point where sense plus object meet, smelling, seeing, hearing, tasting, The point where sense plus object meet is enthralling, and so they are wasted by the tides of being, drifting along an empty, pointless road. Nowhere is there any sign of broken chains. But others come to understand this sense activity, and because they understand it, the stillness fills them with delight. They see just what contact does, and so their craving ends. 
they realize the total calm. If we recognize the pleasant as pleasant, we break the chain of causation. Craving does not arise. If we do not recognize pleasant as pleasant, craving arises and in the wake come grasping and clinging, and it happens really fast. All by itself, pleasant is quite innocent. It doesn't lead to suffering. It's not bad. We don't need to get rid of pleasant experience, pleasant sights, smells, sounds, tastes, thoughts. We can notice them. We can be present with them. We can experience pleasant. We can enjoy them. But it does serve us to realize how they condition, how they condition us, how very quickly pleasant can turn into craving, into the sense, oh, I I want it so badly. I need it. I just must have it. Joseph Goldstein says he's noticed there's such a thing as, um, what does he call it, catalog consciousness, where you get a catalog in the mail, something you're not even interested in, you know, like auto parts. Or like for me, that would be like auto parts. But I might start opening the catalog, looking at, before you know it, I see three things that I feel I just must have, even though I never even knew I wanted them. It happens really fast. And of course, we live in a culture which glorifies craving, which glorifies this search for satisfaction, which feeds the illusion that indeed the objects of our world have within them the power to make us happy. They have some inherent power over us. Like here's an ad, um, an auto ad. For a, it's very clever. They don't even say the name of the auto, but if you look closely, you can see what it is. It's an infinity. And it says here, cave into your desires, yet stay in complete control. <laughs> the ultimate you know, dream that we can have it all. So whether it is the new car or the bigger house or the amazing new person in our life or the shoes or the handbag or... In our culture, we are entrained to want all kinds of desirable objects. This is the good life, right? Not only to want them just one day, but every day of your life, get up and want things. For some people... I think it is a, a, a sense that this, this is how you feel alive. You know, if you're bored, go shopping, open a catalog. So for us to hear about tanha, this, this craving as the cause of suffering, is completely counterintuitive. So I want to read this again because it takes a while to s- somewhat let it sink in. For some people, the moment of contact, the point where sense plus object meet, is enthralling. And so they are wasted by the tides of being, drifting along an empty, pointless road. Nowhere is is there any sign of broken chains. But others come to understand this sense activity, and because they understand it, the stillness fills them with delight. They see just what contact does 
and so their craving ends. They realize the total calm. Now what's great about a retreat is that on retreat we get, an ex- we get a chance to experience both of these. You have had on this retreat moments of great peace, tranquility, stillness, calm, have you not? Peace in many forms. The other night Richard led us through that exercise on the simple way of being where it was just right there, this sense of contentment and stillness and peace. And you have also undoubtedly bumped into a bit of craving, even if it's for nothing but the bell ringing at the end of a sitting. Or for, I don't know, what have you been craving here? Lattes? (laughs) Sleep? What else? What's that? Ginger chai tea. Ginger chai tea. I'll talk to the kitchen. We bump into this experience of craving. So one of the usefulness, one of the uses of retreat is to bring some awareness to these experiences, to to feel what it is like to have that sense of tranquility, of calm, of peace, to really know it in yourself energetically. It's so wonderful we're emphasizing the energetics of your experience because that will make you more sensitive to these different states. So to really know that in yourself, to have it in your cellular consciousness, this is what tranquility feels like. It's wonderful. We can also see what it is like to crave So that is what we're going to do a little exercise right now. Um, We're going to consciously crave something. This is an invitation to let it rip. (laughs) So I'd like you to, to close your eyes for a minute and just think of something you crave, something you really, 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 really want. And just let yourself imagine it, feel into it, feel what it's like to crave this experience, this person, this object, this money, wealth, fame, whatever it is. And then I'm going to ask you some questions. Where in your body do you feel this craving? What does it feel like in your body? What does it feel like in your mind to really, really want something? Where is your focus? Can you sense or, or see what is it that hooks you? What is it that in particular about this object hooks you? 
Is it something about the object that seems very appealing to you? Or does it give you a good feeling about yourself if you were to attain this object? Would it give you some kind of feeling in yourself? Or would it make you feel more loved or more powerful or more safe? See if you can see what is the hook. And is this experience, this direct experience that you're having right now of craving, is it pleasant? Is it unpleasant? Some of both? Is it neutral? Okay, you can open your eyes. So to do it consciously, because often a craving especially lurks in the underground and we don't even know we are in the grips of it when it's happening. We're just moving towards, it's like we're sleepwalking towards the cookie without really realizing what's happening. So to do it consciously brings this sense of uh, being more familiar with it as it really is. So this is something to keep exploring with mindfulness. One of the things that is so deceptive about this force of craving is that when we are craving something, we tend to attribute to the object qualities or attributes that they that it may not actually have it's like falling in love you know for the first time we imagine this you know the person of our dreams you know no faults just all perfect we we want that so badly that we project it out onto the person or to the money or whatever else it is that we're craving We want to believe our desire will fulfill our wildest dreams, so we project our dreams onto the object. So in this way of working with desire, of seeing it, of of understanding it, We are challenging another belief, which is that in our culture we think that the way to resolve desire is by satisfying it. Does this work? Find out for yourself. In practice, we question this. We suggest instead that the way to resolve craving is by knowing its nature, seeing in our experience how it works, how it, understanding how it drives us into compulsive, obsessive behaviors, and that that is a kind of suffering. Overall, did you find the direct experience that we just did pleasant or unpleasant? Neutral? Pleasant? A mix? Sometimes when we're wanting something, our attention gets very narrow. Have you noticed that? There's a saying, when a pickpocket meets a saint, all he sees are the saint's pockets. Our attention narrows. 
There's this whole world out here, but we're fixated on this one thing. So that can be a kind of uh, unpleasant feeling. I'd like to read something that Bhikkhu Bodhi advises about working with desire. He says, um, the tool the Buddha holds out to free the mind from craving is understanding. Real renunciation is not a matter of compelling ourselves to give up things still inwardly cherished, but of changing our perspective on them so that they no longer bind us. When we understand the nature of desire, when we investigate closely with keen attention, clinging falls away by itself. In this investigation, our concern must not be with what is pleasant, but with what is true. We have to be prepared and willing to discover what is true, even at the cost of our comfort. Real security always lies on the side of truth, not on the side of comfort. Wanting in itself is not very intelligent. It is limited, partly because of this narrowness of view that happens when we're wanting something. The poet Rumi writes this. He says, who makes these changes? I shoot an arrow right, it lands left. I ride after a deer and find myself chased by a hog. I plot to get what I want and end up in prison. I dig pits to trap others and fall in. I should be suspicious of what I want. (laughs) Upandita Sayadaw, a a Burmese teacher I, I sat with, said it like this. He said, lust cracks the brain. Lust cracks the brain. When we are in the grip of some kind of craving, we just don't think clearly, do we? I know you all know this. So the Buddha talked about three kinds of craving, and we've just covered the first, this craving that is based in sense desire, sense pleasure, wanting more of the pleasant, wanting to get rid of the unpleasant. Another kind of... uh, craving he talked about is called bhava tanha. And this is the craving for existence, craving for becoming more, craving for becoming something you are not. Lily Tomlin put it this way. She said, I always wanted to be somebody, but I should have been more specific. But that craving, I want to be somebody. I want to be someone. So here's a poem by George Bilger. It's called Unwise Purchases. They sit around the house not doing much of anything. The box set of the complete works of Verdi unopened. The complete Proust unread. The French cut silk shirts which hang like expensive ghosts in the closet and make me look exactly like the kind of middle-aged man who would wear a French cut silk shirt. 
The reflector telescope, I thought, would unlock the mysteries of the heavens, but which I only used once or twice to try to find something heavenly in the windows of the high-rise down the road, (laughs) and which now stares disconsolately at the ceiling when it could be examining the Crab Nebula. The 30-day course in Spanish whose text I never opened, whose dozen cassette tapes remain unplayed save for tape one, where I never learned whether the suave American conversing with a sultry-sounding desk clerk at a Madrid hotel about the possibility of obtaining a room actually managed to check in. (laughs) I like to think that one thing led to another between them and that by tape six or so they're happily married and raising a bilingual child in Sevilla, Sevilla. But I'll never know. Suddenly I realize I have constructed the perfect home for a sexy Spanish-speaking astronomer. (laughs) And I wonder if somewhere in this teeming city there lives a woman with, say, a fencing foil gathering dust in the corner near her unused easel, a rainbow of oil paints drying in their tubes. On the table where the violin she bought on a whim lies entombed in the permanent darkness of its locked case, next to the abandoned chess set. A woman who has always dreamed of becoming the kind of woman the man I've always dreamed of becoming has always dreamed of meeting. <laughs> and there it, there it is. That is one way to describe the American culture. Maybe we, we, maybe we, we want to be someone we want to be someone, and maybe we think it will bring us something. Maybe love, maybe recognition, maybe approval, attention, confirmation. And because the motivating force is this tanha, we can never get enough. It never, we never arrive at the satisfaction that we believe the fantasy is about. We want more and more and more. There's this lovely Chinese proverb, tension is who you think you should be. Relaxation is who you are. There is again the natural healthy desire to actualize our potential, to to use our gifts in the world, to become a person that we enjoy being. But in the marketplace of our culture, it is easily co-opted, that kind of innocent desire, even in the spiritual marketplace. Jennifer Wellwood wrote this poem called A Renunciation that really is about this. There will always be voices that promise you greatness and glory. They call out from the worldly marketplace. They call out from the spiritual marketplace. They call out from the failure holes marketplace. They call out from the bigger, better, more marketplace. Do not buy their false promises or purchase their ephemeral wares. What fulfills for a moment is not worth the price of your soul. There are heights that will lift you, but not when you try to ascend them. There are powers that will fill you, but not when you make them your own. 
There are treasures and there are imitations of treasures. If you have lost your true gold, at least turn away from the glitter. Want only what is true. Want only what is true. Uh, Richard mentioned the other night, and I think he will teach us more in the next few days about some other mistaken identities that we easily take on, especially in the spiritual marketplace. They're called the Pointer Sisters. (laughs) (laughs) So, Bhava Tanha, the third type of Tanha is called Vibhava Tanha, and it is the thirst for non-existence. It is the aversive state of mind that is so filled with an intensity of affliction that it wants to annihilate itself. Sometimes strong feelings of shame or humiliation or uh, experiences of abuse can lead to this feeling of wanting to disappear, of wanting to be invisible. Maybe it leads to thoughts of suicide, just wanting not to be here at all. Sometimes this desire is what brings people to spiritual practice, a longing to transcend that is filled with a sense of aversion to this human experience. They want to get out of here, and attempt what we call the spiritual bypass, to find a place that transcends emotions, the body, the dukkha of being human. Mindfulness is a wonderful corrective for that kind of approach to spiritual life. As we say here at Spirit Rock all the time, meditation is not an out-of-the-body experience, but a in-the-body experience, which you are uh, certainly not only learning, but uh, embodying on this retreat. So these are the three kinds of craving spoken about in the text, Kama Tanha, Bhava Tanha, and Vibhava Tanha. We can practice with these, we can begin to locate them in our experience. They may be fleeting, they may be momentary, but still we can begin to explore what this, these arisings that occur as we are going through our days here. Remembering that the seeing of them and the understanding of their conditioned nature is meant to free us. It's not a philosophy that is anti desire. It can also, and this is really helpful and true, it can also help us to choose more wisely because we do experience the consequences of our desires. Who you are now, how you are now, in part is a consequence of the desires that have been manifesting, have been driving you in your life. And in the future, you will reap the fruits of the desires that you are enacting now in your life. 
what we want and the energy we put into pursuing our desires has consequences for our entire life. And so a retreat is a great opportunity for really, really clarifying what it is you want. What is it you really, really want? We are not here to tell you what you should want, but to encourage you to explore wanting and to understand its consequences and to really get in touch with what it is you want. It's really up to you. And now I have a question, which is a question that if you continue this practice, you will, you will sense into. If all of our projections of desire onto the world were withdrawn, does the world cease to be interesting? Does the world cease to be less alive, more boring? Or does not wanting actually bring a greater sense of aliveness, connection, love, a greater sense of being part of the whole, a more inclusive experience of life than just what is me and what is mine? It's a question for you. The poet Ryokan uh, was a Zen monk. He ended up living quite happily in solitude up in the mountains. And he wrote wonderful poetry. And he said, without desire, everything is sufficient. With seeking, myriad things are impoverished. Plain vegetables can soothe hunger. A patched robe is enough to cover this bent old body. Alone I hike with a deer. Cheerfully I sing with village children. The stream under the cliff cleanses my ears. The pine on the mountaintop fits my heart. It's possible that less projection of desire out into the world opens us to seeing more clearly, to seeing things as they are, free of our stories about them. This is what the, Bur- the Buddha called the suchness of things, seeing things without us projecting our agendas and our needs and our desires on them. The Buddha said the highest form of knowing is to see everything in its suchness, to see everything without projecting desire or aversion. When the mind is free from craving and aversion, then there is in the seeing, just seeing. There is in hearing, just hearing. There is in tasting, just tasting. There is in thinking, just thinking the suchness of the world. So this 
way of considering our lives can help us in many ways. And one of the one of the ways is is uh, in understanding the difference between happiness and pleasure. And I'm going to end with this little reading about that from Nisargadatta, who said, he, he taught by dialoguing with people, so here's a person asking him this question, what is the difference between happiness and pleasure? And he said, pleasure depends on things, happiness does not. As long as we believe that we need things to make us happy, we shall also believe that in their absence we must be miserable. Real happiness is best expressed negatively as there is nothing wrong with me. I have nothing to worry about. The ultimate purpose of practice is to reach a point when this conviction is based on actual and ever-present experience. The questioner says, which experience? Nasargadat says, the experience of being empty, uncluttered by memories and expectations. It is like the happiness of open spaces, of being young of having all the time and energy for doing things, for discovery, for adventure. Your true home is in nothingness, in emptiness of all content. True happiness has no cause, and what has no cause is immovable. So let's just sit for a moment together. Without desire, everything is sufficient. With seeking, myriad things are impoverished. We have about 15 minutes for walking and then we'll return for the final sit with some chanting. Thank you for your attention tonight. (laughs) 